0: I'm Doug Storm. Welcome to Interchange. Today's show is about for-profit colleges and universities, or the predatory education business. If you're surprised to hear predatory and for-profit used interchangeably to describe this industry, you won't be at the end of the show. Our opening music is Nat King Cole's You Don't Learn That in School. My guest tonight is A.J. Angulo, a professor of education at the University of Massachusetts at Lowell and author of Diploma Mills, How For-Profit Colleges Stiffed Students, Taxpayers, and the American Dream. Published by Johns Hopkins University Press. Surely two things must spring to mind when one says for-profit education, University of Phoenix and Trump University. The first graduates only 5% of their enrolled student body, according to the 2012 U.S. Senate Report on Health, Education, Labor and Pensions. The second recently settled for $25 million, a lawsuit claiming the college defrauded the students offering worthless education. And now this. As reported on April 27th in the Chronicle of Higher Education, a week after we recorded this conversation, Purdue University in Indiana will buy the for-profit Kaplan University. Quote, Kaplan will become a non public benefit corporation that will operate as a new Indiana public university as authorized by the Indiana legislature affiliated with Purdue University and focused on expanding access to education for non-traditional adult learners. This is an example of a trend A.J. Angulo warns about in his book, the university following the model of the for-profits in finding and exploiting a non-traditional student market of online learners while employing an assembly-line precarious labor force in the form of the adjunct instructor, but now with the imprimatur and brand of a respected public university. But this is nothing new, as we'll discover in our conversation about the history of these diploma mills with A.J. Angelo in Pred-Ed tonight on Interchange.
1: There ain't no doubt about it,
0: you don't learn that
1: in school.
0: Your book uh, tracks the history of, uh, I guess, for-profit colleges and universities, and so really begins at the beginning, right? The, the country and, and how it evolved with its educational institutions.
2: Yeah, uh, as a historian of higher education, one of the things that I was interested in was the lack of discussion that you see in the research right now, and in the popular discussions about for-profits from a historical perspective. So one of the things that I was interested in was just getting a handle on how long these institutions have been around, what kinds of responses the public has had to for-profits. And I was really looking for something to give me an understanding of the overall sweep of for-profit institutions in America. And what I found was next to nothing. I mean, very little that I could go on that would give me sort of an overall picture of the industry. So one of the things that uh, inspired it was the current controversy that we see with for-profits. I mean, it starts with today. And uh, and so that's, that's sort of the origins of the book. Uh, looking at today, looking at the kind of responses that we have, some people saying we need them, other people saying they're defrauding students, and all of the litigation that we see and investigations that we see in the for-profit industry so the first question that I typically have when I'm interested in something that's going on today is how long has this been going on hmm so the for-profit study that I that I finished uh, in 2016 came out in 2016 uh, really is my own attempt to fill a gap in my own understanding about this very important sector it's now Consuming about thirty two billion dollars of uh, student federal aid, and that 's just an enormous slice of the overall federal aid budget and uh, and all of the controversy surrounding it so this book was an attempt to try to understand where these institutions came from and what kinds. Of responses, the public
0: is at right. So uh, it's easy enough to look at our headlines, or just look at Trump, obviously, and Trump University as as one example of, uh, I guess, this kind of institution, a for-profit institution that makes promises about what it will do for you, and generally does not keep said promises. Um, but there's a, um, I, I think, your book is an interesting way in to store to study the idea of for-profit uh, ideologies, uh, commercial interests, uh, versus what we, I think would tend to conceive of as a public good, mm-hmm. um, and how these two don't mix very well, uh, and how it, uh, and I guess how you track the, the way the, the money is the central f- focus for, for most of this, not the education.
2: And, and it's not surprising. I mean, these sure. are for profit institutions and that is why they exist um, that 's the primary reason why they exist and if you look at the balance sheets on these institutions today, you can definitely see it. I think one of the one of the easiest sort of litmus litmus tests that we can use to understand whether or not an institution is in the business of education or in the in the business of creating a profit and that 's just looking at how much they spend on instruction mm-hmm. I think that 's the easiest way to just sort of get through cut through all of the I think, confusion and, uh, and fog that, that's created about these institutions, how much do they actually spend on instruction? And a very important study and report that came out in 2012, it came out from the H- HELP Committee, the Senate U.S. Senate Committee, uh, that was investigating these institutions, they said roughly about 17%. Between 14 and 17% of the overall budget is spent on instruction. That's at for-profit institutions. If you look at nonprofit institutions, and I've been at institutions where it's 70, 80 mm-hmm. percent of the overall budget is spent on instruction, paying for faculty, uh, instructional services, counseling, all of the kinds of things that you see at a traditional uh, nonprofit institution, and it's not that the nonprofits are doing everything perfectly, but the question really does boil down to where. where is your emphasis? What's your priority? And if your priority is somewhere else, if it's in advertising and if it's in profit uh, and you you throw 17 percent toward instruction, I have to question whether you're really in the business of education. (laughs) This is Doug Storm
0: on Interchange. I'm speaking with AJ Angulo, professor of education and author of a recent history of for-profit colleges and universities called diploma mills.
3: Robin Hood was famous, but one thing you should know, he only robbed the rich folks cause the poor folks had no dough, but you don't know
0: it's a, a pretty simple question and a simple answer it seems like I think one of the the major points you make in the book and, and you end uh, around that uh, 2013 help report the uh, Tom Harkin uh, investigation Senator Tom Harkin and you say well uh, you, this is again a, I guess useful information but it's the same information that you get in every study <laughs> that's been done over the, the length of this kind of uh, uh, understanding of this boondoggle in the education industry
2: yeah and and obviously this this book has poked a hornet's nest Mm. um and poked at a hornet's nest and (laughs) you know so i've gotten some responses and the responses aren't in the hundreds of different kinds of responses that people typically have it really boils down to just a couple of of key arguments i mean one of them is that uh, these institutions um are in the business of serving a community that is not typically served in traditional higher education. So that's kind of the first point that people make. Um, So, you know, traditional higher education overlooks this population. We need an institution or an industry that's going to be servicing these these institutions. And so you have people on the left and on the right, really does kind of cross the uh, political spectrum. And you have people making a case, look, we need these institutions for this. But what what economists have consistently seen again and again, as you mentioned, you know, we get the same sort of data every time we look at these institutions. One of the things that's consistent across time is that these students leave with far more debt than traditional nonprofit students, and they, their chances of employment or their uh, alignment with the kind of employment that they were trained to be in. So, you know, I'm in business management, but I really just get employed by, you know, a, a fast food chain or something mm-hmm. like this um, at, at a low level without the need for, a, you know, a credential or a degree. You know, when you look at that, when you, when you see what economists consistently say, you're at a disadvantage, so when there are other alternatives, when there are community colleges that are giving degrees for seven, $8,000 for what a for-profit might charge $44,000 for, you really have to ask the question, is it servicing and is it really – providing a needed resource for, for that demographic that's been overlooked.
0: Well, i, I got to tell you, AJ, it's one of those things that s- strikes me as just ridiculous on its face, right, to, to make any kind of argument that there is an industry serving or servicing a particular underserved or underdeveloped or uh, impoverished market even. Uh, play, people who, who aren't going to college don't, and generally it's people who can't afford to, like they say these things, right, can't afford to go to college, and yet these are the most expensive in, in many ways. So it's an Odd, clear, um, bad argument or specious argument on its face, right?
2: Yeah. Well, there's a lot of funding, (laughs) a lot of money in this, and there is quite a bit of money that circulates back to campaigns.
1: Right. And so,
2: you know, when I look at the way in which politicians respond to this, you can really ask yourself the question: Well, how much funding have they received from the for-profit sector and the lobby? The lobby is tremendous. Uh, the, the for-profit lobby is incredibly powerful, and, uh, and they do have a, a very significant presence in Washington, D.C., but they also have a presence at the state level as well. Right. And so you see quite a bit. Of um, vague, yes, we have a few bad apples kind of responses to the industry, but if you go through the kind of litigation that you see from you know early two thousand, two thousand three, four, five, six, seven, right on through to the present. Every year, major litigation against these institutions for fraudulent behavior. Right. I mean, this is behavior where they're simply misleading students. They're misleading uh, shareholders. You've got the evidence of them misleading the the, um, uh, the federal government. In one case, you know, one of the responses that I typically get for you know for this for this study is, you know, well. You know, not all for-profits are like this. We have a lot of, you know, mom-and-pop institutions that are doing a great job. And my response is okay, but 76%, let's put a figure to this, 76%, according to my most recent study, I'm sure there's more recent studies than than the one I'm citing here, but the 2012 statistic says that 76% of students in for-profits are enrolled in a an institution that is represented on Wall Street in other words they, they are a publicly traded institution which means they're they're a large-scale institution which means that they have a very high likelihood that they've been engaging in the kind of practices that most of these institutions are engaged in which mm-hmm. is telling students that there's a 99% chance of employment when you' graduate when you know there are no statistics to back those claims up right. uh, telling them that you know they have the very high uh, success rates with, you know, students repaying their loans when there's no evidence of that, you know, all of the kinds of indicators that students need to make an informed decision. And so when I hear, yes, but there are a lot of mom and pops doing a great job, my question is, are you not taking into account the 76% of students that are enrolled in these institutions where the, the, uh, the median uh, uh, student is there for about four months and they drop out? Right.
0: Yeah. I, again, it's one of those things that you, it's it's hard to know how to manage the arguments that are, that are as as I say and as you indicate are clearly specious. They don't have any basis. In fact, even if you say, yeah, there are twelve percent percent of these institutions that do that are doing good, a good job. Yeah, that do good work. It doesn't mean that uh, that that supports the you know eighty two percent that don't. Um,
2: and it, and it even extends beyond that. Mm-hmm. Let's take for instance University of Phoenix. Mm-hmm. They have an online program. And one of the things that just startled me when I started this, in, this study and in, in investigating these institutions, so University of Phoenix advertises like crazy. It's out there. They have a tremendous web presence. Um, in 2009, they spent more than Apple Corporation on advertising. Mm. So one of the most popular products on the planet, you know, they, they, they outspent Apple Corporation mm-hmm. uh, in advertising. So that's, that should show you the kind of interest they have in, in creating and generating revenue. So hundreds of millions of dollars devoted to attracting students. But they have an online program and these students sign up for Pell Grants. and they, So let me ask you something. What, what do you think the graduation rate from their online program is?
0: Well, I'd have no idea, but, of course, if I'm going to guess low. Guess, if oh. you were to take give me a percentage. 23%. 23.
2: All right, 23%. It's actually about 10%.
0: <laughs> I was trying to be generous.
2: Yeah, you were, oh. and, and mm-hmm. it's 10%. 10% of the students at the, who, who enter into University of Phoenix's online program uh, graduate. Now, let's think about this. That's a tremendous there, – there's very little overhead Right. You don't have to, to set up a, you know, a campus just for online programming. Um, a lot of this stuff could be automated. So they sign up four months in. They say, you know what, this is not working for me. And we know this. We know that uh, from, from people who, who study online programming, there's really only about 10 to 15% of people who, who work well in an online environment. Mm. Um, and that's, that's been a pretty steady number. Uh, so so we, we've been giving uh, students Pell Grants, to sign up for a program, they hand over the Pell Grants, they drop out after four months, and who gets to keep those funds? Right.
0: The school, obviously. The institution. I hate to call it a school. The, The business. We'll go to a break and hear Brenda Holloway's song, Play It Cool, Stay in School from 1966.
1: Play it smart and play it cool.
0: Stay with us for more Pred Ed with A.J. Angelo when Interchange returns.
1: Cause when you learn more, you're Yeah.
0: Brenda Holloway's 1966 song coincides nicely with the Johnson administration's Higher Education Act of 1965, which did not include the for-profit colleges. Nixon would reverse that in 1972. We're speaking with education historian A.J. Angelo about his latest book, Diploma Mills, and we'll continue to hear about the unscrupulous nature of many of these businesses as they simply conform of PT Barnum's dictum that there's an aspirational sucker born every minute. So play,
1: it smart, play it smart, and play it, cool, play it cool. You'll
0: never play the part. Uh, we get trapped in those terminologies, right? These these uh, the fact that you call yourself a university or a college uh, doesn't mean exactly what you think it means. And I, and I think that's part of the the strength of your book too is to again walk us through these these situations through the history of how education becomes what it is in the first place from uh, a divinity school like Yale and Harvard which which has a real intention of uh you know what it what it wants to do is is create obviously a, a, an upper class or an elite uh that that has um uh, you know particular moral instruction at its at its core and to be leaders in the the moral uh conscience of its of its uh, new nation as well. And and then moving on from there, uh, you, you just try to track us uh, in the way these, these kind of opportunities to educate come up because there are, there's a population that that needs it i guess right <laughs> in one sense that there is a population that needed education or needed a kind of education and uh, this kind of uh, for profit venture uh, is is a kind of backbone of the country in the first place right
2: yeah yeah and and and, and, the, and that's why one of the arguments that we hear today really could be applied in the 19th century the 19th century we see colleges for uh, for profit colleges emerge um, on a large scale, mm-hmm. we, you know, you can go back to the colonial period and say that for profit, we could go back to the ancient period mm-hmm. and say that there's always been somebody who's been teaching somebody else something for for a buck. Right. Um, and in the colonial period, we would have called those apprenticeships. Mm-hmm. You know, I... I'm going to learn how to become a master mason, but, you know, I know I have no skills. I'm going to sign up and, you know, study with this person or at least work with this person. They're going to teach me some skills. And in exchange, I'm going to give my labor for free. I'm going to just simply work for this person, but they're going to teach me along the way. And mm-hmm. that's a form of tuition, right? So that's one kind of for-profit that I that I trace in the early uh, colonial period. And then we, we move into the 19th century, and you see that there are – And people interested in business, you know, look, you know, there's a a need for people to be accountants and people who know how to, you know, work, and and sort of play a a a central role in, in a larger industry or business. And so you see these kinds of institutions crop up. What are the what are the non-profit institutions doing? They're completely ignoring it, almost completely ignoring it. There's some in the 1830s and 40s who you know dabble in it, but to make a long story short. In the 19th century, you do have these for profit institutions emerge to fill that void. But what's surprising is even then, you have an outcry from the public about the way that they're misleading students through advertisements mm-hmm. inducing students to sign up and graduating them with you know a six month degree that really doesn't allow them to do what it is that they said they were going to be prepared to do right. so even in the nineteenth century we see the same kinds of problems and i think that's one of the key takeaways from this book it, for me too it was just something that was a revelation as i'm going through this which was this is not a new story. Right, we've been we've been dealing with this for a long time.
0: Well, it's not a new story in the country generally. In the you know again quoting I forget which president the business of America is business, right? So and it, but it's a weird thing in which we we confront again in this place that we want to idealize in some sense, right? We've got public education in our in our sort of ethos. You know, it takes a while for that to become a thing, and, and out of necessity as well to manage. Uh, children for working parents, as much as anything else, but um, the idea that business is hucksterism g- generally uh, is what this exposes, as much as anything else. At least a certain kind of of uh, what we what you call ed- or what everyone at this point calls edupreneurs. Mm. Um, you know, people that are generally looking to find a way to make money off a thing. It doesn't matter what it is. If there's money in it, let's figure out a way to exploit the particular need.
2: And we've had a long history, a long tradition of thinking about education as essential for democracy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Thomas Jefferson said, you know, if you expect to be, you know, ignorant and free, you expect what never was and never will be. You know, this is right. kind of like one of those one of those famous quotes that you see cited often. And that's kind of lining up with we need education to have a democratic society. And so that's one value. We have another value that says we need education and this has been supported by Gallup polls since the 19 I believe it was 1970s 80s consistently hovering around 70%, 60-70% of the American public see higher education as the or one of the most important vehicles for accessing the American dream, this idea of succeeding in America. So there are very deeply ingrained values that Americans have about education that it is critical to advance in our society, whether economically or socially or politically, you need to have that. And that's an important value, and it's one that I think is um, admirable and one that we, we should promote. The, the issue becomes how do uh, for-profits service or meet those needs? Do they meet them well? Do, have they consistently been uh, a vehicle for both accessing the American dreams or supporting American democracy? And if that's not been the case, then we need to rethink how the federal government should um, relate to them. And what, what kind of relationships should they build? Should mm-hmm. they be in the business of providing Pell Grants and student loans to them? Well, I think that there's plenty of justification to say that they have not handled, by and large have not handled, and the for-profit lobby has not handled the the, the discussion well, and they have not handled these funds in a way that seems responsible, and for us to continue to say they're just a few bad apples in this industry i think is misleading i think it's not aligned with you know history i don't think it's aligned with statistical evidence and i think there's plenty of reason why we should be rethinking that even on sort of a logical uh, basis i mean if we're to just, just overlook all of the things that i just mentioned you can have conservatives agree with the fact that should for profits uh... derive ninety percent of their funding from a government source And I can see that 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 creates an incredibly important tension for conservatives to say there shouldn't be government involvement in in an industry like higher education.
0: This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with A.J. Angulo, professor of education and author of a recent history of for-profit colleges and universities called Diploma mills
1: Robin Hood was famous,
3: but one thing you should know: he only robbed the rich folks cause the poor folks had no
1: dough. but you don 't
0: to me, it also sort of demonstrates the difficulty with, how, with sort of the polarized idea of government and those particular values um, the The left uh, of education is public education, and the rest of it is is a kind of buyer beware domain that's that you expose throughout uh, finding ways to make use of government largesse. Mm. So you can track it and you do track it obviously, that's but the big part of the book is, for me at least, was how what you might have said was a great idea in education, or in helping and serving uh, a population that needed training or needed education, uh, in particular, I think you one of the the first real uh, obvious example is the GI Bill. Uh, but you go forward from there to Lyndon Johnson as well, and and the uh, HEA uh, Higher Education Act and the Great Society and the ways in which these uh, particular. Left-wing or left movements in the country were were basically taken advantage of by a um, uh, well, I don't even know how to characterize it, almost a vulture industry.
2: Yeah, it's, there's predatory behavior. Yeah,
0: predatory indeed. So,
2: that that yeah. I that I that I captured through. A lot of litigation, uh, discovery, uh, government reports, uh, you know, there are all kinds of sources that point to the same sort of, of behavior time and time again. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I think is beautiful about history is you can look back and say, hey, why do we have to keep relearning lessons? Uh, why do we have to look at reports from the 1980s? Why do we have to hear uh, William Bennett in, 19, in the 1980s say, this industry is exploitative and deceitful. Now William Bennett is a conservative. William Bennett is someone who's uh, you know in favor of uh, of uh, free enterprise and you know innovation on that level and and, and so what, one of the things that you know is, is really kind of s- startling is the way in which we have to re- we forget it. By the time we get to the 1990s, we have another report from Senator Nunn uh, of Georgia. Oh, Sam Nunn writes, you know, look, why is it that we throw a dart at a map, and we can find fraud. Right, <laughs> why right. is it that we can do that? Uh, why is it that we have to relearn that in the Help Committee of the 2010 to 2012 study with uh, with the for profits? We, we keep coming back to the same point. And right now, we have Trump as president. We have uh, Betsy DeVos, who's a very big proponent of yet another. I want to say, a kind of meme. You know, we have these threads or strands that we can draw out from uh, from our our history. You know, so one of them is education is essential for a democratic society. Another one is that education is, is important for accessing the American dream. I would say another one is our faith in technology mm-hmm. and, and progress. We have this faith in that, you know, there's going to be a solution, a technological solution that, you know, isn't just about hardware. It's a way of thinking, right? It's, you know, a way of, of, of innovating. And becoming more efficient, becoming more rational in how we distribute whatever it is that we need.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And so you have Betsy DeVos, who's drawing on a very uh, you know important meme or thread in our in our history, which is why do we have Uber out there, and uh, and yet we still have these kind of old taxi style uh, you know schools. You know we need to we need to innovate. You know we, we need to free up the educational monopoly that the public uh government you know the that gov- government sources have on uh on education. And we need to free it up and, and innovate. we need Uber style innovation mm-hmm. in education. The concern I have with that is we're gonna run up right against the kind of problems that we've seen in the nineteen eighties, nineteen nineties, early two thousands, now in the two thousand tens, which is Deregulation of an industry that really desperately needs to be regulated and enforced is just going to open up the floodgates to fraud, uh, shysters, hucksters, and predatory behavior that we've seen time and time again.
0: It's time for another break. We'll hear James Brown's Don't Be a Dropout from 1967, which prompts the question Did the Johnson administration have a federal program for these? Now, good friend of- more on diplomacy when interchange returns. terms.
3: He told me a story, I know you hadn't lied. He said you went for a job, and this man said, Without an education, you might as well be dead. Now don't get me wrong, he said it's not who you are. But people come to me from a near and afar. But I do just work, and I follow the rules. I didn't have an education. So I had to go back to school. Tell me one more time, people now. What do you say? Without an education, you might as well One more time. What do you say? Without an education, you might as well be dead. Come My friend told all of his buddies that he loved so well. And of their personal trouble, I will not tell. Now, those guys didn't seem good and they didn't seem bad They didn't seem so happy and I know they weren't sad But the point isn't that they follow the rules They got an education and they all finished school Now underneath his tears I can see the true fact. When he dropped out of school he never, never went back Tell me one more time people again Without an education, you might as well Gotta, gotta, gotta listen now, now. Without an education, you might as well be Look here! So one day he got tired of his little spending chains. So he looked up his friends to check their pay rings. When he got there, the crib, he found that he was a drag.
0: Welcome back, I'm Doug Storm. We return to our conversation with education historian A.J. Angulo on for-profit colleges and universities. How do FPCUs scam thee? Let us count the ways, more specifically in this second part of our show. Did you know liberal icon Ted Kennedy was a staunch supporter of a chain of correspondence schools for truck driving, run by the Indiana-based Continental Training Services? Seriously. A correspondence course for
3: driving.
0: Calling it, uh, as you see it, in in, in, the, in the current context, is also to say that it again is specious, and uh, as you say, using memes that don't translate to realities. You know, these are not helpful uh, industries uh, to people as they live their lives. The, again, that's the promise of a thing that turns out to be empty generally. You know, so somebody like Devo- DeVos who has, who has no education credentials, who's just a, a very wealthy woman who whose family I think promotes a, a religious education as much as anything else. So again, these are all coming to the head. They're all the same. They're not different. Uh, as you say, I don't think we forget these things. Uh, as a public, I think they're just there. Maybe people who who don't have an opportunity to really Think about what education is. think about going to beauty college or mechanics college or take a taking a correspondence course for trucking um, you know <laughs> e, if you're not able to conceive of whether this is good or bad that's interesting in itself yeah. but uh, the fact that this is a clear fraud and has always been once you look at it um, e, it's not forgetting, it's intentional, right? It's, it's, yes. <laughs> I
2: mean, yeah, it can't, yeah. you can't and, be and forgetting,
0: guess, AJ. It's, it's, we do it over and over. The people in charge keep allowing it to happen, right? Well,
2: uh, I think it was Gore Vidal who, who named us you know, the, uh, the United States of Amnesia. You know, we, we do, there, there's another theme there, another meme, which is we, we have hope. And I think that's that's a, that's again another very admirable quality that the United States that that I think Americans typically have, and I'm painting really broad strokes here, but one of the things that typically um, has has galvanized us as a, as a, as a, historically as a, as a public has been, there, that there is optimism, that there's hope that we can, you know, learn from our mistakes and gonna do better next time, or, you know, or, or that there is a solution to the kinds of problems that we have. And that is a pretty stark contrast from, let's say, and again, I'm painting some very broad strokes here, but, you know, European views, which is a little more cynical, you know, you know there's sort of more skepticism about that there's hope and progress around the the corner, um, you know, we, we have a campaign that was organized around hope and change. You know, people have a very uh, hopeful and optimistic spirit, or else we wouldn't elect politicians who had you know this sort of sunny view of of the world, um, and that you know we can solve these problems, whether it's environmental, whether it's you know global conflicts. You know, there's there's sort of this idea that it's just a solution, very easy. We can t- we can take care of that. Um, the problem is that there, there are some, and, I, and one of the purposes of writing this book was to highlight some, some really intractable conflicts of interest that I think exist in the for-profit uh, higher education industry. If, if your primary goal is to create revenue for people who have uh, you know, shares in your stock, there will always be, always. This is and I and I'm always getting on my students to never use the word always and 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 you know and, and never those kinds of things but one of the things that I'm pretty comfortable saying is that there will always be a drive to reduce costs because the more costs you can reduce the greater the profit you can return from for your shareholders And what's the easiest place that you can chip away at? Well, instruction, what happens in the classroom. You know, people don't quite see that externally. They just see numbers, you know, graduates and employment rates and student default rates and that kind of stuff. But we don't actually see what happens in the classroom. That's a very private sort of thing. So we can chip away at that. That's the easiest place that we can chip away at. And so what we know is that uh, adjuncts and temporary instructors and people with, I, you know, I hate to say it, but sometimes very questionable credentials get put into those classrooms because they are what? The least expensive. We can reduce our costs there, and we can increase our revenues. Who gets hurt in that exchange? Well, the students. The students walk away with degrees that don't allow them to practice what it is that they set out to. There are nursing schools that you have with, uh, that I trace in the book where you know they graduate from the program and no hospital will take them. Simply, they just won't hire them because they know that the instructional quality is so poor, and they can't put these people at the, you know, in 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 a situation uh, where the, someone's life is on the line. And so that's a really good barometer of whether or not we're giving quality instruction. Nonprofits and the accrediting, accrediting agencies that regulate them. Uh, require that there's a certain standard, a certain quality of instruction, and uh, and if it's not met, they don't get accredited, and there's a lot of, I think, loose regulations around who gets accredited in the for-profit industry, and that's because the for-profits themselves often run the kind of accrediting agencies that will allow them to get the federal loans.
0: This is Doug Storm on Interchange. I'm speaking with A.J. Angulo, professor of education and author of a recent history of for-profit colleges and universities called Diploma Mills.
3: Robin Hood was famous, but one thing you should know, he only robbed the rich folks cause the poor folks
1: had no dough. But you don't remember.
0: Oh, I, I don't want to call it collusion, but at the same time, there's a, the surprising uh, fact, maybe, maybe it shouldn't be. Again, I, at some point you have to see that um, politics is about money as much as anything else but i think it was the uh what was it the trucking correspondence mm-hmm. uh which uh, ted yeah. kennedy was uh, was so pro about that's an indiana based uh, uh, or was an indiana indiana based company
2: yeah so there there was in the 1980s there was an institution that that um that was giving out degrees um, or certificates or some sort of uh, credential For students who would sign up uh, for a correspondence course that would help them to learn how to drive a truck. And if uh, if you're familiar with what truck drivers have to do, they actually have to show and demonstrate competencies, you know, that they can make the, the corners and all that kind of stuff so this um uh, this one magnet in indiana decided that they they were going to sell these degrees and they made uh, hundreds of millions of dollars off of uh off of students and uh, this is in the 1980s and one of the things that they they discovered was or at least the us department of education at the time discovered was that there was just no way that these students were getting the kind of instruction that they needed that this is an absolutely questionable program um, and that they, they weren't following the kinds of uh, standard practices that truck driving institutions need to follow. And what's more, they found all kinds of fraud, that there were you know students that were being ghosted, which is, you know, we're just going to invent students and send in the documents and, and receive the Pell Grants. Um, so y- you've got a lot of that kind of behavior um, when there's deregulation. You can expect that the in- industry right now is just doing backflips, over the idea that they're putting, as they just recently did, appointing a former for-profit lawyer uh, for Bridgepoint University, uh, which is a for-profit college, as special uh, assistant to the Secretary of Education, Betsy DeVos, um, and you know, appointing essentially a for-profit lobbyist to for-profit corporate lawyer in charge of higher education policy, or at least uh, informing higher education policy, and that's why you see since the election in November. Uh, a lot of these for-profit institutions, their stocks are going through the roof, and that can't really be a good thing for students. Well, it's
0: uh, as bad because, uh, in some sense, the, as stocks go through the roof, it it legitimizes it in terms of investing as well, and so it gets more money to do more things, right? So it's the, the unfortunate cycle of, of uh, deregulatory success.
2: Yeah, yeah. the, the ITT CEO... This is uh, before they, they went through all of their you know, bankruptcy and uh, litigation that they've had. But Kevin Modaney, I, I, I'm paraphrasing here, but he said something along the lines of regulatory assault on our schools and institutions is unprecedented. By, by that, um, when I read something like that, what I see is he's unhappy with the enforcement of law of the rules that we have on the books. He's unhappy with the fact that we have rules that say you can't tell students that you have a 99% graduation rate when it's 10%. You can't tell students that they're going to get a job for sure when they graduate when that's not true. And for for me to read or to hear, you know, the the CEOs of these institutions saying regulation is the problem. What I what I really see there is that they don't want to be uh, held accountable, and uh, they don't want to be, you know, schools are held accountable, you know, no child left behind and all the rest of it. So we expect accountability from almost all sectors. When we say that regulation is a burden, we're saying is we don't really want to be monitored. We don't want to be, we don't want to have any oversight, And and that creates enormous conflicts of interest, and it opens the floodgates to fraud.
0: It's time for one last break. This time we'll take a course in funk at Disco Tech, an unlikely seeming tune from Carol King. The lesson perhaps being what you see is not always what you get. Stay with us for more interchange on WFHB. Change, I'm Doug Storm. Finally, what can be done? Likely nothing, as our current for-profit-in-chief stacks his cabinet with the likes of Betsy DeVos for Education Secretary, a member of the 88th richest family in America, hawking charter schools and religious education, who in turn has appointed as her senior counselor, Robert Idol, formerly General Counsel for Bridgepoint Education, and operator of a for-profit college that was investigated by the very department he now serves. In 2010, Bridgepoint had an 85% dropout rate in its two-year degree program, prompting then-Senator Tom Harkin, an Iowa Democrat, to declare Bridgepoint, quote, a scam, an absolute scam, unquote. As we talk, it's one of those things that, you know, you just kind of shake your head about and say, of course, right? And I, I don't know how you don't say, of course to any of this in a way that you track through all public institutions or what we again we think of as public goods the things that we need to do to create a stable social organization right so that we can uh, hopefully give people the opportunity to uh, achieve a livable life but also to uh, help us all out like you know so we can all live in that same place it's a it's a difficult thing to to continue to run up against these competitive industry-driven, lobbyist-driven, for-profit-driven, bottom-line-driven business practices that are inherent now in, in what seems like every level of government as well and not just constantly be wondering how in the world things can be different. But again, I still don't understand how anyone would have a good word to say about it if you have any sense of what this business does you know, to make money. It's uh, what what got me interested in your book as much as anything else was that uh, locally, you know, schools invite. Uh, and I'm, I get grumpy about both of these things, but invite uh, colleges and institutions to come to you know career days and things like that, and come to the lunchrooms and and pass out information. The army does this as well. I don't like that either. But uh, so re- you know, recently I just saw a thing in in our local high school about you know the career day, and one of them, one of the uh, institutions uh, coming to the school was a beauty school of some kind, mm-hmm. um, and you know it just kind of struck me. I was like, well. I, all I have to do is, is click on a, open up my browser and, and look for uh, beauty school statistics and beauty school fraud or you know, what, what happens after beauty school, and you don't get rosy pictures anywhere.
2: Well, okay, so there are a couple of things, and let me try to unpack them quickly here. So the first one is, you know, uh, I don't understand y- y- your, your statement of, I don't understand how anyone could say a good thing about it. Um,
0: <laughs> this is what you ca- caution your students against.
2: Well, let let, let me. Well, I I mean, I I just want to be fair and say the following. I mean, one of the things that is very powerful, and and a meme that's very powerful in our uh, American psyche, is that you know that we we do believe that freedom is an important value. Right, so we we don't want to be controlled. We don't want to be overregulated. We we want to be free to do the things that we want to do. And some so that's that's a very sort of powerful meme in our history, you know, independence and the frontier and this kind of thing. And that's a that's an important thing that we should identify and be able to say, okay, we understand this meme. But at the same time, we also have to say. That we we need laws. That we are a nation of laws. I do I do think that uh, that's another very powerful meme that people say often. You know, when we're talking about let's say for instance immigration, we're a nation of laws. Okay, I'd like to be consistent though and say that we're a nation of laws when it comes to the finance sector. I'd like to say that we're a nation of laws when it comes to the for-profit industry. So we really can't say we're a nation of laws in one area, but let's deregulate and let's not enforce the laws in another area. So I would say that's one of the conflicts and tensions that we have in, in looking at that. As far as beauty schools, advertising in a school, you know, people need to know their options they need to know all of their options and not just the kind of options that are most aggressive in advertising. So there's absolutely a requirement for people who cut hair to go get a license and they need to study. So when I see these individuals who are who are promoting their institution, I say, that's, very, that's a very important thing that students know that higher education or, you know, getting an English degree is not the only thing that you can do in life. You know, you should know that there are practical skills that you can learn from other people and their institutions that provide it. But at the same time, they should know exactly what their um, graduation rates are, what their success rates are in placement. And I think that that should be a very important variable when students sign up, because they need to know that the one that's advertising of the school, if this is the case, is charging $44,000 for that beauty school degree where you can get the same exact credential somewhere else for $7,000. Students should be made aware of those those options as well.
0: Well, that's a fair point, and I'd say the, the thing we'd have to understand that those particular regulations aren't coming down the pike anytime soon. Uh, so, as a, as a, maybe as a parent, as a citizen, how do we, how do we protect ourselves and our children in this space, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, one, of, one of the questions that we should always be asking is, and what should we do, right? right what, right. what should we do about this, you know, the problem that we've had for all this time? And, you know, some people say let's deregulate, let them innovate even more. Um, I'm, I'm, am not very optimistic that that's going to be a, a positive out, that that's going to yield a positive outcome for us. Um but you know there there are more options than simply let's add regulations or let's reduce them i think there are other options that we should consider and one of them is that we can draw from history is that when when we have the higher education act signed in nineteen sixty five uh... you know the that for profits were not included for-profits were not included in the idea that those institutions should be eligible for government funding. And um, that doesn't happen until the reauthorization that we see in 1972 when they added the word and phrase proprietary institution. So we have proprietaries, for-profits, who are added to the uh, Higher Education Act, and they've been there ever since. So one of the questions that you know keeps coming up to my mind is, how difficult would it be? Of course, politically, very difficult. But how difficult would it be logistically, not politically, but logistically to just simply remove that phrase from, from our Higher Education Act reauthorizations? And that's one way to say, if you want to exist you need to show that you can exist on your own merits rather than ninety percent funding from federal government you know that that really doesn't resonate well with almost anybody when you start to look at this when it's when you start to say if ninety percent of your revenue is derived from uh... government sources and you are considered a for-profit and as in two thousand nine with Strayer university that's often touted as a good institution look you want to look at a good institution look at strayer That institution, with about 40,000 students, gave its CEO $42 million in one year for the the, the salary for the, the CEO, Robert Silberman. And that's equivalent to, at the time, 36 college presidents. Nobody's worth that. Nobody is worth that on its own merits, because if you look at, you know, 36 institutions, you know, Harvard and Stanford and Yale and California and Texas and all the rest of it, even if you just took one institution and compared it, University of Texas, Austin, uh, I think last year, uh, the, the the president of UTA, which has a student population of about 40,000 students, equivalent, exact, almost identical to uh, Strayer University, that president received a base salary of $750,000 how can you justify that a for-profit institution and their ceo merits 70 uh, 42 million dollars when an institution a comparable institution uh is is giving its its president uh you know 750,000 dollars I, I really don't see how that is good for the higher education industry i think it distorts the ecology of higher education finance all across the board because then that forces institutions like University of Texas Austin to start looking at well what are they doing that might benefit us and a lot of it has to do with advertising and I really don't think that nonprofits should be competing in that space
0: well you do call into question I suppose the idea that um, you know how we measure these things and what they're for you could say Strayer uh, it turns uh, a profit for investors, right? That's a shareholder institution, and and in that case, can it be called successful as a business? in you know, as a business, whereas you know the the idea that it has um, uh, supposed to be producing or creating uh, uh, an informed citizenry or a, a person with a degree that makes makes value for that person, uh, that that question isn't answered or asked even.
2: Yeah. Yeah, and 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 it's fair if there are some institutions that say, Hey, look, I'm not in the business of supporting democracy. I'm in the business of making sure that this person knows how to run a, a nuclear reactor, and you know, is this fun, you know serves this function, or you know, does this thing with radiology in a in a, in a hospital. Um, I'm, I'm I'm all for understanding that some people simply need very good and high quality technical skills to do the jobs that they need to do, and that may not come with a political science course, or that may not come with uh, you, know, you know a philosophy you know course. Even though I would value those things, that I can understand why some. People People would say, hey, look, I, I simply need to get this techn- technical degree to move on to, you know, understanding how to run or operate this, this sort of machinery. Um, the, the, the issue is uh, when, when we start to look at why that CEO made that much money that year and you start to look at what the institution did again with instruction and you see that there are cuts to instruction in the year that that CEO got a massive increase in in the CEO pay and so I would say that the incentives there distort what the purpose of higher education should be about even if it is technical skills and even if it's technical training it distorts what the institution is about if your primary goal is to satisfy the demands shareholders are not educators. They're not. They don't typically know what an institution of education needs to do, yet they're going to be demanding certain things from an educational institution, and that is going to dictate the policies at that institution, and that's going to trickle down into the classroom.
0: Well, so the question that we, are, we need to be clear on, or I guess the answer we need to be clear on, the, uh, is that, um, you know, we're not we're not talking against a vocational aspect. Again, that's another part of the book that is fascinating to me is how, uh, you know, the nonprofit worked to encompass or draw into its uh, educational goals the, the practical role of uh, educating for particular uh, job needs as well. So vocational, uh, vocational training isn't the, the sole purview of, of a nonprofit, Uh, institution or nonprofit industry, but rather another way to educate to serve a particular need of uh, the social body. Uh, So I I wasn't trying to necessarily either say that vocational uh, training is a bad idea. It's just that we're talking about an industry that uses these particular uh, markets uh, to to plunder uh, basically government funds.
2: Yeah, yep. yeah, and there have been plenty of scams. I, I go through them, and there's yeah. you know there're Pell Grant scams, there's student loan scams, uh, student uh, institutions that make up student names. Uh, you know, before the, the era of, uh, of big data, you know, you, you could simply just make up a student, and the federal government would say, I, I guess that student exists, and so let's send a check. Um, but the you know we we've entered an era of big data. We know a whole lot more, and the the issue has become increasingly, from my from what I can tell. The issues become increasingly that we're, we, and by we, I mean the federal government is typically uh, becoming more and more captured by the kinds of uh, interests that are supposed to be um, regulated. So, you know, the instance of hiring uh, Robert Eitel for, you know, a, a special assistant uh, to Secretary DeVos, you know, that that is um, a really big problem when you have... That individual who was, you know, five minutes ago defending Bridgepoint against the Department of Education, now inside the Department of Education. Um, and Bridgepoint, by the way, had to settle, a, a, you know, multi-tens of millions of dollars in, in, uh, in, a, in, a, in litigation because, you know, it was found that it was misleading students in its promotional materials. So if you're putting those kinds of people in charge, the outcome is going to be fairly predictable.
1: Your story's sad to tell.
0: That's our show. Thanks to A.J. Angelo for joining us to chart the course of one of this country's most cynical institutions, the for-profit college. His book is Diploma Mills, How For-Profit Colleges Stiffed Students, Taxpayers, and the American Dream, published by Johns Hopkins University Press. We'll close with Frankie Avalon's Beauty School Dropout off of the Grease soundtrack. Take heed, Frenchie. I'm Doug Storm. Thanks for listening. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is Assistant Producer and Jennifer Brooks is our Board Engineer. Our Executive Producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by The Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Now more necessary than ever. UD school
3: driver, No graduation day for you Beauty School Dropout Your midterms and flunked shampoo Well, at least you could have taken time
1: To wash and clean your clothes up After spending all that